Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bunker Book Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by um, Mark Morris, who's written an acclaimed history of the Anglo-Saxons. The reason I wanted to have him on was, perhaps I'm generalising from my own ignorance, but I know next to nothing about 500 years of English history, from departure of the Roman legions to the Norman conquest, apart from a bit of Alfred, a bit of Bede and Canute and the Waves. And Mark has produced a wonderful history of a large swathe of the English past with all the most up-to-date research and very readable too. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on, Nick. It's my pleasure. Is my ignorance, do you think, uh, general, do you think most people know very little about the Anglo-Saxons? Well, I think... I think so. I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think the, the reason for that would be, firstly, we're taught it at school, but we're taught it as children. Obviously, that's a bit of a, an obvious when we're taught it at school. We're taught it as very young children. We're taught the Anglo-Saxons when we're generally at primary school. And so we only get to apprehend them in the most basic and general terms. So they lived in houses like this and they had weapons like that. And they you know, might have prayed to this or that God. And that's why we have days of the week called you know, what, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, etc. Yeah. So and, and then we just we leave it. We move on to later periods. And, and I think the reason for doing that is quite a valid one is that the, the source material is very weak compared to later centuries. So for most of this period, the written sources are hard to interpret and sparse. And we rely on archaeology, which is also can be very exciting when you dig up gold things, shiny things, but also, again, very difficult to interpret. So when you're teaching children, you know, the skills of source analysis, uh, you go for periods, post-conquest periods, where the the written source material is richer. Now, Mark, I once, this was years ago, I once read an essay that said all historians of 5th and 6th century England end up snatching imaginary flies to the, from the air and talking to themselves because it is so hard to work out what happens. But I find that period absolutely fascinating because the Roman legions pull out a 410, is that right, 409, 410? Roundabout. And what was the state of Roman England in its last decades? Well, we all, we all properly, sorry to, to, to sort of pull you up from the start, we all talk about Roman Britain. because oh, forgive me. Yeah, oh, indeed, yes. England although, although Scottish listeners would say you never conquered us. So what's the state of Britain? Well, Britain, uh, as you say, had been Roman for a, a, you know, the best part of 400 years prior to this point. And a very sophisticated society had developed. So when I say sophisticated, lots of economic specialisation. So if you were in, you know, th- second or third century Roman Britain, you could be a carpenter, or a mosaic layer, or a vintner, or a merchant, or a soldier, or a slave, or a shopkeeper, you know, etc., etc. That society starts to go into very steep economic decline towards the end of the 4th century. And by the time you get into the early 5th century, I think we're looking at kind of all systems collapse, you know, where the, the, the coinage ceases to be minted and imported, the army is gone, the state is effectively gone. So it is every person for themselves. And crucially, Mark, you make the point in your book, this is before the Saxon invasion and colonisation. Well, it's before the colonisation. Saxons have been you know, um, attacking the coast and indeed inland in Britain since the late 3rd century, as had the Picts, as had the Irish. But 
the reasons for the collapse are more to do, it seems to me, to be, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the collapse of the Roman state at the centre. So there's, there's things going on which meet in, in, in Central Europe, which mean that resources are withdrawn from Roman Britain to the point where it's interesting you said that the legions leave, which is the kind of fairly conventional way of understanding it. But what the, the most detailed of very few written sources we have says is that the Britons decided to go it alone. You know, they were sort of so fed up with the constant war and invasions that they threw off the Roman state and elected to live with their own judges and their own lords. I always find um, historically periods like this fascinating because in the Western mind, you see it in the Whig theory of history, Marxist theory of history, there's an idea of human progress, Hegelian notions of history going forward, having a point. But in terms of economy, and we'll get to this later, probably in terms of freedom as well, the Dark Ages, if you allow me to call them that, well, society goes backwards. Society, as you say, almost collapses. I think one system, I mean, if you were sort of trying to sort of be as even-handed as you can, you might end up saying, well, it's one system being replaced by another system. Of course, you shouldn't ignore the fact, just because I say the Romans, the Roman society was very sophisticated, meaning economically sophisticated, it was a society built on the labour of slaves. So yes. Roman society, as I'm not saying, is any less oppressive than what comes afterwards. But it's just in terms of the way I to, to, to try to explain how it, how it was that the, 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 the Saxons or the Anglo-Saxons came to be the new power in the land is that they were better at basic stuff. They were more like survivalists, having come from the far, far north, you know, not just the fringes of the Roman Empire like the Franks, but, you know, a long way away from the, the centre of quote-unquote civilization. They were the people who turned up who could build their houses from scratch themselves, rear their own pigs, slaughter their own pigs, make their own clothes and fight for themselves. You know, they, they were trained in warfare and bearing weapons from an early age. Whereas if you had been a vintner or a shopkeeper in late Roman Britain, that was your trade. You, the, the state didn't allow you to bear arms. You were forbidden by law to bear arms. So you're going back to a simpler society or you're, you're going to a simpler society and all the sophistication that had been built up has to be laboriously relearned over a period of centuries, which is essentially the sort of leitmotif of the book. It's not only how did England come to be, but how did the things that we're familiar with in England today and from the, say, the period of the Norman Conquest, bishops, abbots, shires, sheriffs, boroughs, etc., they are not there at the start. So how did that new society come into being? Okay, Mark, let me tear you from the murk of the uh, 5th and 6th centuries. When do historians start to see recognisable Anglo-Saxon societies that you can comment on? Is it with the emergence of kingdoms in Kent and East Anglia and Sutton Who, which everyone will, will know about? Is, is that, when are we talking about, what time period are we talking about and what do we know about it? Well, I would say late 6th, early 7th century, or in broader terms, the 7th century. And the reason being, one, you mentioned kingdoms, which legend tells us, or later later historians tell us, were there from the start. So Hengist and Horsa get off the boat in Kent in the mid-5th century and are immediately kings of Kent. But when we look right. at the archaeological record, 
it's hard to see any kind of social differentiation until you get to the late 6th century, when all of a sudden you get things that people in general are quite familiar with, great princely burials, so people being buried with lots and lots of finery and covered in a great mound of earth, the most famous example being the ship burial at Sutton Hoo. And you also get the archaeological remains of great wooden halls, the kind of thing, again, that people would associate with King Theoden in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know. So Mark that there are people at the top of the tree lording it in a very grandiose way over everybody else. And at the same time, at the very end of the 6th century and on into the 7th, you get Christianity being re-established by the Roman mission of St. Augustine and a little later, the mission from the Irish church coming in via Northumbria and Lindisfarne. And that means you get, with the return of Christianity, you get literacy, and you get laws being written down, and ultimately you get grants of land being recorded in writing. Uh, society goes from being illiterate to literate, and it goes from having a galaxy, as far as we can determine, of tiny kingdoms. I don't mean the, the seven that everyone knows about. I mean, I mean dozens and dozens of kingdoms. Those smaller powers coalescing into something recognisable like Mercia, Wessex, East Anglia, Kent, etc., and the level of civilization there, because you, as you say, a theme of your book is how do the lands that now become England rebuild after their collapse? Is it comparable to what's happening happening in uh, what we'd now call France and the Low Countries, or are we still a very backward, isolated island? I think if you're sort of viewing it in comparative terms, we're behind the curve, or at least the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms are behind the curve, if you're comparing it with Francia. One of the key things about the emergence of the Kingdom of Kent is it's emulating and taking a lot of its material culture from what is becoming Francia. Um, And that's obvious in the archaeology. It's also obvious in their adoption of Christianity. So... And and, and there is, however, as a point towards the end of the 7th century and into the 8th, where there's a kind of great leap forward for everybody, I think, round the the North Sea coast, which is the sudden resumption of a silver coinage. So kings prior to this point had issued gold coins, but in very few numbers and really only for the prestige of saying, oh, yes, I have a coin with my head on it. But all of a sudden, around the sort of year 700, you get the the number of small finds of coins goes off the graph. And clearly, the economy is suddenly booming again around the British coast and and the coast of Northern Europe. And of course, having freely available silver coins will encourage the economy to grow as well. Yeah. So you get this sudden, I mean, we've got two markers that show we've got a sudden economic boom. One is this just eruption uh, on the graph in terms of coin finds, like nothing ever seen before or, or afterwards for a long time. And secondly, you get the emergence of uh, trading places, Emporia or Wicks. So you get places like Ipswich, Hamwich, which is the precursor of modern Southampton. And London comes back on stream all of a sudden. Uh, you get Lundenwich. Like all the cities and towns that had prospered in Roman England. Oh, sorry, you've got me at it now. Roman Britain. Um, <laughs> London uh, becomes a ghost town after the Romans leave. One of the most evocative turns of phrase from all of the sort of uh, corpus of Anglo-Saxon poetry is uh, they refer to the buildings built by the Romans as enter your work, i.e. the buildings of the giants. So there's the sense that this crumbled kind of ruinous post-imperial landscape was incomprehensible, that you could look at something like the the theatre in Roman Canterbury and not be able to comprehend how it was put up by men, and it had to be therefore ascribed to the giants. The one thing people will know, they'll know about 
Sutton Hoo. And then they'll jump to Wessex and the importance of Alfred. Do you think that the Victorian justification of him as Alfred the Great, Alfred the founder of England, uh, stands up in, in modern historians' arms? I think just about, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff which is said for Alfred, as you say, in the Victorian period and a little earlier. I mean, Alfred... Alfred as Alfred the Great only really kicks off in the early 18th century. Um, He's first called Alfred the Great in the 13th century by a medieval chronicle, but it's not until the publication of a book in English called Alfred the Great in the early 18th century that people go crazy for him. And they really do. In the 18th and into the the 19th century, it's kind of its total Alfred mania, statues of him going up, follies commemorating his battles, people calling their children Alfred, of course. That's the beginnings of his kind of modern cult. But there's a lot of the original Alfred on which that is based, which I think means he's worthy of commemoration and admiration. In the first place, I mean, this is this is well known because of the um, the Bernard Cornwall stuff. Alfred is the last of a long line of brothers from the, the Kingdom of Wessex. And the kings of Wessex and all the other kings of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms have been dealing for 70, 80 years in the ninth century with the Vikings. So this is the big thing that shakes up Anglo-Saxon England from the moment of their arrival. We've got a new um, wave of invaders coming across the North Sea, initially as a, as, a, as a nuisance, just raiding coastal communities. But by the time you get to the 860s, toppling kingdoms. So East Anglia, Northumbria and Mercia disappear in the space of a decade and fall to the Norsemen. Wessex famously holds out, hence the last kingdom. And Alfred not only holds the line, but pushes the line back. And that's why it's a later chronicler, the first person to say he was the founder of England or the first king of all England, as it were, was a 12th century chronicler called Orderic Vitalis. Now, whilst that's clearly not the case, Alfred only ruled Wessex plus half of Mercia he had annexed. Alfred is responsible for developing and pushing the idea that that there was a a sort of common heritage and a common ancestry to people living in what would become England. That's a fascinating question. I hope I'm not pushing you far on your sources. When did the Anglo-Saxons start thinking of themselves as one people? Or is Alfred the first politician, if you like, to exploit that idea? No, there's a sense. There is a sense from from very early on that they have uh, that, they, that they have this in common because one the way that sort of early medieval early medieval people thought of themselves as to, to the extent that they thought of themselves as single ethnic groups is largely determined by language. So when B says, well, these are the peoples who live in Britain, he says there's the Irish because they speak Irish and there's the Scots because they, or rather the Picts because they, they speak Pictish. And uh, you've got the Britons who speak British or uh, Britonic. And he says you've got Latin as well as a lingua franca and you've got the English who speak Old English. So they have this, cu- this, this um, cultural unity. But of course, politically, they're all over the place. And one of the things that Alfred does is he starts playing up that idea of shared cultural heritage and shared ancestry and encouraging the England to define them, the English to define themselves as not heathen. So that's very clearly formed against the Danes who he's battling against. And one of the things that's interesting that Alfred does is he'd form, he and his predecessors had described themselves as uh, kings of the Saxons, Rex Saxonum. And from this point on, once he's annexed um, half of Mercia, and the Mercians had thought of themselves as Angles, i.e. Anglian, Alfred starts styling himself as Rex Anglo-Saxonum, i.e. King of the Anglo-Saxons, uh, something which is maintained by his two immediate predecessors. So he is using that to reach out 
beyond the kind of the, the narrow political sphere he starts in. And I think for that reason, for that reason, he deserves his kudos that goes with him as a founding father. After Alfred, you can start thinking about the English and as a description of, a, of an ethnic group, as a description of a people, it sort of starts making sense, whereas perhaps before, you know, it's all beca- it's, a, it's a lot hazier than that. Well, I think no, I think they had a set. I mean, just as you might take a, a good analogy, but with the Welsh, for example. So the Welsh should consider themselves one people, the Kimri, from a very early date. But politically, they are divided into a galaxy of competing powers. And I think it's rather like that with the English, that they consider themselves. I mean, when Gregory the Great writes, uh, sends Augustine over to begin with, he talks about, you know, sending Augustine to the Angli. So there's a sense in which English can stand for all of the peoples in what becomes England. But there is this curious thing that some of them prefer to describe as Saxons and others prefer to describe as Angles. And there is this very curious division very early on, which is hard to work out why one particular group identifies, you know, as one or the other. But I think by the time you get to Alfred's reign, and certainly into the 10th century, there's a clear sense in which Angli, as a catch-all term, is winning out. And there's, of course, another group in the north, generally, the Viking invaders of the north. How much... Sorry, this is asking you to, to generalise in the way astute historians... How much do the divisions we still feel, and I feel quite strongly, between north and south, how much does that come from a separate un-English or different type of English Viking culture in Northumbria and Yorkshire? I don't think much at all. I think I think modern I think the divisions between North and South are sort of they're either kind of time immemorial in that it's a long way away or the landscape is different. So they're very deep causes that have less to do with whether the Vikings were there for fifty years or not. And the soil's worse, it's not as productive, it's a different different country. Yeah, it's the, the difference between upland and lowland, that kind of thing. The different, the distance between the continent, on, or rather uh, Francia on, for, for the south part of Britain and Scandinavia for the other. So I think there are undoubtedly long-term causes. But I think if you feel a difference because you live in Northumbria and it's due to the Vikings, then it's probably not. It's probably due to someone like Margaret Thatcher or someone <laughs> rather than um, yeah, yeah, Harold yeah. Hardrada. But, it, but it, was, it, it, it is interesting because Anglo-Saxon England gets going, briefly unites the country, and then you have more Viking invasions. And a person who's largely forgotten, except for one story, which you're very funny about, or very interesting about, forgive me about, Canute and his son who ruled the country, and rule it, I think, as tyrants, because you're rather sceptical of modern uh, uh, dismissive interpretations of Canute sitting, when Canute sits by the sea with his courtiers and tells, tells the waves not to come in, that he was being ironic and mocking his courtiers. Well, there's nothing about that in the original telling of the tale. That becomes, I think, the way people square Canute being a successful king with Canute apparently being an idiot in that tale. I think, I mean, I think there's there's a vague sense in which it was a stunt in the original telling by Henry of Huntingdon, in that Henry of Huntingdon says he did three very remarkable things, or he did three very great things. In Henry's telling, it's Canute leaps back and says, you know, there's no power that's worth having except, you know, the power of God above, you know, that God controls or, you know, nature and kings don't. But I think my general problem with Canute is that because the the evidence for his reign is so weak, the written evidence, and because he's seen as being a successful king who kind of held England together for the 20 years of his reign, he's written up in in terms which make him sound very benign. 
And he's written up, you know, this is in, in, even into the 20th century, historians saying what a good king he was. And I don't think the people who lived through the trauma of the, the very long drawn out Viking conquest that culminates in 1016, which is extremely bloody and has lots of noble families being mutilated or, or, or done to death. My final chapter is goes up to 1066. But the, my, my starting point is that the people who lived through that 50 year period didn't know the Norman conquest was coming, because they were too busy dealing with the fallout of the very violent Viking conquest that had happened at the start of the chapter. I want to ask you two final questions, which are sort of linked, which are tied to the notion of the Norman conquest brings a Norman yoke to freeborn Saxon Englishmen. Now, the first is, uh, and I didn't know this at all, was there was a great deal of slavery in Anglo-Saxon England. I think at some point in your book, you say 30% of the population are slaves. Yeah, as a maximum. I mean, certainly by the time Doomsday is compiled in 1086, we seem to be talking about 10% of the population. But going back a couple of centuries earlier, yeah, it's a slave trading, slave owning, slave raiding society. And that is something, as you say, which scholars for hundreds of years were happy to overlook or, or kick into the long grass. Anglo-Saxon society is destroyed by the Norman Conquest. It is a catastrophe. And ever since then, way into the 18th century, there is this notion that Englishmen were freeborn, that Saxons chose their kings in a kind of proto-parliament. I mean, I even, you even notice this a bit with, I thought, think Daniel Hannon tried this in the Brexit debate, saying we're going back to the freedoms we had in Saxon England and the Normans stand in for the EU how true is that? Not much. I mean, you, what you've basically done is sort of trotted out the sort of the idea that Anglo-Saxon England what represented a golden age. And I think that's the problem with when people go looking for beginnings, there's always a once upon a time, everything was better. And I think the Norman conquest for the English, and, you know, as a conquest for any people would, gives the people from that moment onwards the ability to say, well, the, I can't stand the regime I'm living under. I can't stand the king or I can't this new law. Once upon a time, it was all better. And of course, the Anglo-Saxons kind of fill that role. So we were freer, we were happier, we were better off. Our kings were elected. And as you say, when you start to scrutinise those, most of those claims prove to be mythological. But they are very, very deeply embedded because I say in most cases they go back to the conquest. Not always. I mean, there's a there's a fairly recent, in the sense it goes back only a couple of hundred years, there's a fairly recent myth that women had better rights prior to 1066 than they did afterwards. And that too, on close inspection, sort of crumbles, you know, like a souffle. I think in some, you know, I'm not trying to be down on what happened before 1066. There's a lot, there's there's a lot of really remarkable stuff in that period. There's both the sort of the art and the, the metalwork and the cultural achievements, for want of a better word, you know, the, 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 the good stuff that does come out of it. At the end of your book, uh, and this is, this is a silly question to ask a historian, but people read the past, as you say, to look at their origins because they can see, you know, the towns that Alfred fa- founded are still there, the counties of Saxon England are still there. How much of it lasts? How much of it lasts in us? How much of it lasts in our memory and myths? I don't think it lasts as a kind of a continual line from that period to the present. As you say, we talked about the Victorian revival of interest in, in, in the Anglo-Saxons. And I think that's the problem, is that a lot of what comes down to us is Victorian myth-making. 
But you've already mentioned, I think, the, the most in, some of the most enduring things. The fact that you know England is still, apart from some tinkering in the 1970s, the counties of England are basically as they were laid out in the 10th century. The fact that we have burrs that were founded in the 9th century. And the fact that a great many villages, I mean, most villages will proudly boast in their parish um, you know, uh, magazine that they were founded, they were first mentioned in Doomsday Book. But the names themselves, if you're talking about Reading or Wokingham or Hawkinge or whatever, those are names which go back to maybe the 6th century. There's a place near me, which is unfortunately pronounced Woodensborough, so you can't really appreciate it, but it's spelt Wodensborough. So it goes back to a time when people had pre-Christian pagan gods, so probably the 5th century. And the fact that all that is is still there and unchanged. The fact that the English church is still based in Canterbury, because that's where Augustine met Athelbert in 597, or the fact that the English political establishment is still based in Westminster, because that's where Edward the Confessor built a palace next to his new abbey in the 1050s. The fact that all that is still unchanged, I think, is is remarkable. And that that's, I think, the, the closest you get to a direct line. It's the institutions and the places around us. Yeah, and also, Mark, it survives in our language to an extent, particularly when we want to be blunt or lose our temper. Yes, yes, I think that's also true. Mark, that's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Your book, The Anglo-Saxons, is published by who? It's published by Hutchinson, who are now Hutchinson Heinemann, and it's subtitled A History of the Beginnings of England. I should have said at the beginning, of course, it's been very widely praised and all kinds of historians heaping praise on you, which must be very gratifying. If anyone wants to heap praise on the bunker, I should say, could you rate us on your podcast apps, Apple, Android, Spotify, however you're listening to us? Just give us a nice rating. That always helps more people listen to us. Give us a nice review. That's always good. Also, we do need some money. So if you've got money, and I appreciate times are hard, subscribe to the Patreon. You get all kinds of goodies and uh, services and freebies and exclusives and all of that helps keep this series going it just remains for me to thank mark thank you very much mark for taking the time to come on it's been a pleasure and thank you all for listening the bunker daily was presented by nick cohen the producer was andrew harrison the assistant producers were jacob archbold and yelena sofranievich Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.